Hello everyone and welcome to the Wilds Cast. Today we're going to be rebroadcasting a lunch and learn that Rabbi Wilds gave on Facebook Live. It's the Sabbath before Passover, known as Shabbat Hagadol in Hebrew. So today we're going to be taking a look at this week's Torah portion and how it relates to the Passover holiday. So without any further ado, here is Rabbi Wilds. Okay, so I want to begin with a, an idea. It's going to touch upon something from Parsha, and it's sort of a broader issue, um, which is a, a real question that I had when I used to go visit my in-laws, a blessed memory. They lived in a small yeshuv, I would call it, like a little of a settlement um, in uh, Boynton Beach, Florida. And um, they lived in this community called Majestic Isles, like 90% Jewish, mostly retirees from Long Island, New Jersey, Westchester. And it's a whole world of shuffleboard and mahjong games and early bird specials, but a very, very beautiful community. And over the years, I got to know a lot of the older people who lived there. And it was amazing because even though most of the individuals with whom I met, at least then, um, were not observant, there was a later influx of modern Orthodox Jews into Boynton Beach. But when we when my in-laws bought their home there, um, there wasn't really much Judaism. There were Jews, but not much uh, of the Jewish religion being practiced so much, but really lovely, lovely people. And it was fascinating because although most of them were not observant, they were extremely proud and identified with the Jewish community, very culturally Jewish. I used to hang out at the pool a lot, um, as most people do when they go to Florida. And... Uh, the men walk around the pool with these big high necklaces and the women often even speak to each other in Yiddish. But again and again, when I used to get into conversations with them about their children or about their grandchildren, there was this huge connect. One after the next, I would hear about how their children have assimilated in one way. This one intermarried, that one intermarried. This one married a Jew but has nothing to do with the Jewish community. There was one elderly gentleman bothered me so much. I felt so bad from a Holocaust survivor. And I became friendly with him, and he told me that his, like, at the time, 35-year-old son, who lived in Manhattan, um, had married someone not of the faith, and so his grandchildren were not Jewish. And I wondered how there was such a gap. How is there such a gap between these parents, uh, the grandparents really there, who felt such an almost visceral attachment to their Jewish identity and to Jewish continuity, and their children, who mostly living in the New York area or elsewhere in the United States, who unfortunately were very much removed from Judaism. And I ask this question because there's something actually quite fascinating in this week's Parsha, in all of these Parshiot in Sefer Vayikra, in the book of Leviticus, which focus really on the life and on the rituals in the temple. And that I think can shed a little light on this phenomenon. Um, and this will be, and this will become relevant to Passover, which, by the way, the Seder is the most widely observed Jewish ritual in American Jewish life. There are more Jews who attend the Seder than Yom Kippur services. So this is a very, very relevant idea as so many of our brothers and sisters come a little more out of the woodwork to get their, their connection to Judaism through Passover, which, by the way, is going to be very compromised this year. Uh, I spent a lot of time this morning speaking to different people, not with their families. And unfortunately, as difficult as this is, as I said this last night at the Ask the Rabbi session I conducted, replace the feeling of like, I can't be with my parents. I can't be with this family member. I don't remember ever not being with my brother or my dad for the Seder. And this year, I'm probably not going to be with either of them. Um, but I'm going to try to replace that that sense of loneliness or that sense of that sadness, that disappointment with we're keeping each other healthy and we're trying to contain this terrible disease, this, this virus, so that, please God, next year we'll be able to be together soon. So that's a really, really important thing to keep in mind uh, when you're dealing with this in the next couple of days. Who's not going to be with who? Replace that sense of disappointment with I am helping to become part of the solution and not, God forbid, be part of the problem. Because even if you're healthy, and even if, please God, you're, you know, you're not experiencing any symptoms, 
containing yourself as much as, as, as possible is going to help contain this whole thing for everyone. So if you're not going to do it for yourself, then do it for everyone else, and literally in the world, and particularly here in New York City right now. So there's something in this week's Torah reading that um, later in the Torah, actually, when God is speaking to Moshe about the life of the Kohen, it opens up with the words, and God spoke to Moshe, speak to the Kohanim, emor el ha-Kohanim, and to tell them that to a dead person you should not become impure. Lemate lo yitame nefashav. You should not, we know that a Kohen is not allowed to come to contact with someone that is uh, deceased. Uh, they have actually alarms in the hospitals in Israel so that if somebody dies, God forbid, in a, in a hospital in Israel, that the Kohanim are alerted that they either vacate the building or they can go to certain parts of the building where they're not considered to be under the same roof of a mate, of a corpse. And Rashi picks up on the double language. Emor v'amarta, that when God says to Moshe to tell the Kohanim not to come into contact with the dead, Rashi picks up on the fact that it's, Rashi is a great biblical commentator, that it says emor say to them and amarta and say to them, like the double language. So quoting from the Talmud, Rashi, Rashi explains this double language. Lahazhir gedolim alaktanim, to warn the adult Kohanim to educate the Ketanim, the minors, their children, that a parent Kohen needs to teach and educate their child Kohen about all the rules and the rituals of the Kohanim. But what was the education of Kohanim that the parents would give to their children? What was it that they were supposed to teach them? Was it the philosophy of what it means to be a Kohen? Was it the concepts and the purpose behind the Kohuna, behind the priesthood? And as you can see from the next 16 verses in the Torah, the parents were obliged to educate their children in the lifestyle of the Kohen, in all of the details of how a Kohen lives their life or doesn't live their life. And that except for close relatives, the Kohen should not come into contact with the dead, that they should not marry certain individuals in the community, a Kohen is restricted from marrying certain people. All of the instructions were really of a behavioral and practical nature. There's really no hashkafa, no philosophy that the parents were told to teach their kids. And it's interesting because in, 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 in general, there's very little mention of Jewish philosophy in the Torah. We at MJE go to town, we talk a lot about Jewish philosophy and why we do this and why we do that, but the Torah itself is really a guidebook on your behavior, on your actions. Judaism is very much mitzvah-centered. And mitzvah are things that we do with our bodies, with our hands. They're not just lofty concepts and ideas out there. They're actually things that we do. We roll up our sleeves. We, we, we kosher our kitchens for Passover. We, 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 we go through all these rituals at the Seder. We lean when we're drinking the wine and we're eating the bitter herbs to feel the enslavement. Judaism is really about the stuff that we do. And I think that's really the way Torah is. You know, and um, philosophy is important, but you know what gets transmitted from generation to generation? It's not philosophy. Really, it's behavior. It's actions. It's the way we live. Philosophy and theology are very important. And by the way, don't get me wrong, because um, if you just perform rituals and you do this and you don't do that and follow the letter of the law of the Torah, but you don't know why you're doing them, or you don't have any soul or any kavanah, any focus and concentration directing your behaviors towards a certain place, it's going to feel like the Balhatanya wrote, like a soul, like a body without a soul. It's going to feel empty. But without the mitzvot, the mitzvot, these behaviors, these rituals, they're simply not transmittable to the next generation. And this really helps me understand how you can have someone with such a strong Jewish identity, someone who proudly wears that chai necklace uh, around his or her neck and is unable to transmit that sentiment to the next generation. Because without a lifestyle, without the mitzvot, which is unfortunately something most of our Jewish brothers and sisters in America are simply not trained to observe. Maybe on Passover we have a few, maybe on the high holidays, but the everyday kind of rituals 
of things that we do when we wake up in the morning and we say the moda'ani, and then we go to the bathroom, we wash our hands, and then we come out and we say the morning blessings, and if you're a man, you're putting on the tefillin, if you're a woman, you do it. All of those day-to-day kind of things are really become lost on so many of our Jewish brothers and sisters. And as a result, I believe that a lot of our grandparents and great-grandparents were simply unable to convey their own deeply held Jewish values to their own children. Because, and I know this as a parent, I can't get my kids to necessarily adopt the way I think. But I can get them to at least see the way I behave. And that's one of the most important teachings for parents and teachers, really, which is not what you preach. It's the walk you walk. It's what you do. Kids in particular, hang on, I'm just closing my door because I got some noise here. I'm sorry. Sorry about that. This is not so simple doing this in the home. You know, kids um, have like antennas for hypocrisy. If a kid sees the parents preaches one thing but does something else, it's the biggest turnoff in the world. And mitzvot are not simply commands. Mitzvot are behaviors, and they are practical ways that we can transmit our most cherished values and our ideas to the next generation. So if we want a, a child to develop a certain belief or certain value, a certain way of thinking, a certain attitude towards something in life, it has to be conveyed in a concrete and tangible way. If we want our children to be thoughtful and caring, we can tell them to be thoughtful and caring until we're blue in the face. They're not gonna, that's not going to make them thoughtful and caring people. The parents have to model that behavior by engaging in acts of chesed, of kindness, of tzedakah, of charity. When that child sees their parents volunteering time for a cause or writing a check to an organization, I'm continuing to speak. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Sorry about that, guys. When uh, I'm just giving the example of when a, uh, uh, a parent wants their kid to behave in a certain way, the best thing to do is to model that behavior themselves. And the, 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 the likelihood of that child mimicking that behavior is so much better than the parent lecturing the child. I remember one of uh, our, my donors from MGE um, called to tell me that his son was coming over to deliver his annual donation to the organization. And I said, that's really, really kind, but you know, you can just put the check, you know, um, oh, wait, all these other people joining. All right. Um, uh, I'm sorry I didn't welcome some of the, those of you who came on. I do a little of the romper room welcoming. <coughs> but I can tell you, I told the donor, I said, you can just put the check in the mail. Why do you have to send over the check with your son? And you know why? He said to me, I want my son to see that I'm giving some of my hard-earned money to charity <clears throat> so that one day he's going to do the same. And I can tell you he probably will because children most often don't listen to what their parents say. They certainly notice what they do. I want to say this piece of Torah and this whole shir in memory of uh, Atara Arbisfeld's grandfather, Rabbi Chaim Arbisfeld, who was an extraordinary man and unfortunately died. He had corona. Uh, he was uh, probably in his mid to late 80s, uh, I would imagine. I'm not 100%. He was a great philanthropist. He was a benefactor for many years to Yeshiva University, and he was a supporter of MGE as well. He loved the outreach work that we were doing. I just spoke with him a few weeks ago, and I'll tell you a quick story. It's exactly this point. I called Rabbi Arbisfeld, who's been in real estate his whole life. His Leon Howard was a very, very successful um, person in real estate. And uh, he had made a very nice pledge to MJE for our outreach work. And I called him up to see how he was going to process the donation. And he said, oh, I'm going to be giving one piece of it, but the other parts will be coming from my four children. I said, oh, and I know some of his children. I don't know all of them. I have to call and pay a shiva call now, unfortunately. Um, he said to me, and I need to share this. I, I share this with one or two of them, but not all of them. He said to me that when I leave this world, he 
He said this to me like two weeks ago, maybe three weeks ago. When I leave this world, I want to know, I want people to know that I, it wasn't just me who gave money away. My hard-earned money to charities that I believed in. But I want my children to have that reputation too. And the only one they're going to do that is if they share in this sadaka with me. So here's mine. I'll be sending mine in, but I've got four other children and each one of them, we're splitting it five ways. And I thought that was so powerful. I told that to Atara and I also told Michelle Selig, um, Ellie Michelle Selig. Michelle is one of his daughters, lives on the Upper West Side in the five towns. And they're very, very special, lovely uh, hosts of MGE. They, they, they take our participants in, in their their home in Lawrence for our Shabbatons. And uh, it's all about modeling behavior. It's all about modeling behavior. If I want my kids to learn Torah, probably the least effective method would be for me to preach to them, to tell them to learn. But if they see their mother or father taking time out from the busy schedules to study, there are no guarantees, of course. There are plenty of people who do it and it doesn't work, but it's a lot more effective than preaching. It goes a lot further. Talk is cheap, kids know it, and that's why Torah is mitzvah-centered. Mitzvot are actually the ways, they're not simply rituals that we perform, right? So I just made a bracha on, on before, on the, the coffee I'm drinking, or the, 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 my lunch, I don't know, I probably should be modeling a healthier lunch than this, but mitzvot are not just rituals that we perform. There are ways that we communicate our most cherished values and beliefs. We convey our belief in God's creation of the world. By doing what? By celebrating Shabbat. When we refrain from doing work on Shabbos tonight and tomorrow, we're not just remaining idle. What we're doing is we're communicating to our families and we're communicating to other people, really communicating to the whole world. We are bearing testimony that God created the world in six days and rested on the seventh. In fact, when you make Kiddush tonight, we always stand for the first paragraph. There's some people that sit for the blessing over wine and, and sit for the other parts, but you're always supposed to stand at least for the first paragraph of the Kiddush because Kiddush is about us serving as testimony. And God created the world and everything that's in it. And God rested from... And we are doing the same thing. We stand. You know why we stand? Because when a Jew gives witness, serves as a witness in a Jewish court of law, the tradition is to stand out of respect. So we convey our belief in God's creation of the world by keeping Shabbat. We transmit the value of gratitude by doing what? By saying these brachot, by acknowledging that God is the source of this great cup of coffee that I just had, before we eat, after we eat. And I, I want to throw this in also because Passover is next week and the Seder. We have all these rituals that we perform at the Seder to express gratitude. I mentioned this last night on my Ask the Rabbi session. Um, when we talk about the Chad Gad, not Chad Gad, the, um, um, the Dayenu song. Day, Dayenu. Sometimes people sing it because they've had enough already by this time. Dayenu means it's enough. But Dayenu means that if God had done this but not done that, that would have been enough. If God had brought us out of Egypt but not smitten the Egyptians, that would have been enough. Had God given us, has split the sea for us, but not led us through the dry, the dry land to get to the other side, that would have been enough. Now, I said this last night, it's not like it really would have been enough. We want the whole thing. But what the rabbis did was they're chopping up all the different things that God did for us. And that's what we do when we make a bracha. And we do this with, the, with regard to our fellow human being. We don't just say, thank you for the lovely dinner. We try to be a little more specific and when you drill down on something more specific, that makes the gratitude, the expression of gratitude, much more real. Which is why in the morning, we recite the Bruchot HaShachar, the morning blessings. We thank God for giving us sight. We thank God for letting us stretch. We thank God that we can walk. We don't just say thank God for life. Because the more specific you are, the more real the gratitude becomes. And that's the way we transmit to the next generation or to other people that we believe in being grateful, in, in developing an attitude of gratitude, not by telling people, be grateful. No, by making brachot, by having a seder, by you know doing whatever it is that we do ritually, mitzvot-wise, that express the notions of gratitude. What about the trait of being open and hospitable to other people? How do we transmit that value to others? 
not by telling people you should open up your homes, hachnasat orchim, by inviting guests. And we actually say that at the Haggadah on Pesach too. We say halachmanya, we break the middle piece of uh, matzah, and we say anyone who needs, kol dichvin anyone who needs a place, let him come and eat with us. And we mean it. We want people to join us. And, and that's why Corona is being, is such a difficult, it's so, so difficult for us to be able to deal with as Jews because it so smacks up against who we really are. We are really a people, I'm not saying we're the only people, but this is something we brought to the world to be hospitable, to be open, to be accepting and bringing other people into our homes and, and sharing the beauty of our Judaism with others. And now we're being told we can't. I really feel like we're doing so much online and, MG, and I'm so proud of MGE staff and how much Torah we're teaching online and how many programs. Last night, we had a cooking class with Dr. Adina Berkowitz. She taught everyone how to make kugel, very important. At 7.30, Allison, um, uh, Allison Wolf did an amazing um, Cafe Connect and, and, and discussions on the weekly part. I'm doing this, I didn't ask the rabbi session, literally, I mean, I'm doing every day, but we're not inviting people over. And I would argue that's one of the most important things that we do at MGE, and that's the quintessential way to celebrate Shabbat. So, and we, we, we transmit that, and we convey our belief that God responds to the cries of his people. We believe not only in God of creation, we believe in a God of history. <clears throat> we believe that God, excuse me, didn't just uh, turn the, you know, create the world and set the world on automatic timer and took off. But we believe that Hashem stays involved. And you know what represents that? You'd see at Mitzrayim, the exodus from Egypt. Because the exodus was the first time that we see God coming to the aid of a victimized and defenseless people and redeeming them from, uh, from, from slavery. That's why Passover is such a fundamental uh, holiday in Judaism and why the exodus is such a looming large theme throughout our liturgy, we, in the Shema every day, Mazon, the grace after meals, and then we reenact the whole thing around the Seder table, Passover, because we convey our belief that God responds to the cries of his people by celebrating Pesach, that God gave us the gift of the Torah by celebrating what holiday? Shavuot, that God protects and sustains us. We go out and we sit in these little huts on the holiday of Sukkot, that the power of speech and the idea that what we say in life matters, that is transmitted through our traditions of what's called Lashon Harav, refraining from speaking ill of our fellow human being, that we don't engage in gossip, what's called in Hebrew, rechilut, that's the biblical term, or the rabbinic term, Lashon Hara, something negative about another person, right? You can tell people, only say nice things. If you don't have something nice to say, don't say something at all. We've all heard it a million times. But if you grow up, or you don't grow up, you start learning, you can start reading and studying the laws of the, the, the Chafetz Chaim's book of Shmirat HaLashon, of the book that he wrote of how to guard our tongue and what are all the rules and the laws and how to apply it in this situation. When is it okay for me to say something negative about someone else? There are exceptions to the rule. If you're about to make a business deal with someone who you, you have firsthand knowledge, this guy's a crook, right? This actually happened. Somebody was, saw me talking to somebody in sh after shul, and somebody else came over me and said, I hope you're not you know, trying to do any financial you know, wheeling or dealing with him because I had um, a, a situation, it has to be firsthand knowledge, uh, where you know, he cheated me, and, and you're, that's an exception. We're supposed to be honest when you fix people up and not make things up about them or lie about their age or things like that, stuff this, right? There are exceptions, but when you start living that kind of life, when you start practicing these types of behaviors of not speaking ill and only doing it when there's a requirement to do it, then that transmits a certain value to the people around you. The Jewish values of humility and modesty, right? It's about the way we dress. It's about the way we speak also, that we relate to other people in, in a humble way, in not, in not a boastful way. We have a concept in Judaism called the Ayin Hara, which is like the evil eye, which is really connected to jealousy, that even if we're blessed to have a lot, we don't show it off. 
we don't stick it in other people's faces because it does engender a sense of, of discontent or jealousy. And we, we walk modestly. And that is the famous verse from the, the prophets, that we don't just walk with God, we walk humbly with God. And, 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 and if we have, it applies to the way we dress. Just because we have something doesn't mean we show it off. It could be money, it could be our bodies. That's why being a modest person is not simply about the way you dress or any of us dress, but it is an expression of modesty. The way we speak, if we're, if we're just constantly boasting, that's, I, I always feel that like Facebook and all of this, is, it, 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 it's incredibly important. And without Facebook, I wouldn't be able to communicate with you right now, without Zoom, without all of this technology. So I think it plays a very significant role, even in religious Jewish life. But it does suck us into showing things off all the time. Look how beautiful this is. Look how awesome I am. Look at, you know, how often do we post, you know, our failures on Facebook? Look, I failed the, or I, I got fired or the, my girlfriend dumped me. Um, so it's a little of a fake book sometimes, Facebook. On the other hand, it could be used really powerfully and the world is really relying on technology right now. I have four kids at home and thank God their their education is definitely suffering a little. It's not the same, but not as much. And MJ is teaching more classes than we ever did before. And thank God for Facebook and thank God for Zoom and for technology. You know, I was thinking about this, I think Daniel Wallach, I don't know if he's on here, he said to me, like, can you imagine if this happened 20 years ago? Right? Our ability to communicate with other people would have been so much more dampered, you know, uh, ha hampered. So we should, but, but the idea of relating to each other modestly, not constantly boasting and showing off what we have. Look what a great body I have. I'm going to show you that. Look how much money I have. Look at this gorgeous house I just bought. So uh, now that doesn't mean we shouldn't feel good about the way we look or good about the money we make or how we, you know, the things that we buy. We're, we're not an ascetic religion. You know, it's, it's a nuanced point. We're, we're, we're not, we don't have to hide if we have something really, really nice. We should enjoy it. But we shouldn't wear it on our sleeves. Not our religion and not our material um, blessings either. You know, on Purim, we can sit around and talk about Haman and his evil plot to annihilate the Jews of Persia. But if we want to ensure that one day our kids are going to tell that story to their kids, then we need to go can't do it now. We need to go to shul and read from the Megillah. You know, we were one of the first synagogues or organizations to shut down. We didn't have uh, a Purim party this year. I keep walking by the Jewish center where MGE is based, and I see the two flyers in our window on 86th Street. One flyer is for our Purim party, which never happened. It happened online. And the second flyer is for the MGE dinner which was supposed to be March 24th. It is, we are booked at Lincoln Square Synagogue for, um, for June 9th, so mark your calendars. We're hoping that we're gonna be able to, to make that on June 9th. If we can't, we'll push it off even further, but it's there. But, uh, you know, we weren't able to get together and I'm actually quite proud that we decided. I wanna thank my friend Ezra Cohn, um, who, um, he was really the one who urged me that we should, we should close down because even though we're a 20s and 30s group, people get corona, it's not as uh, threatening, but we wanna be part of the solution, not part of the problem in containing this and not, God forbid, spreading it anymore. But getting back to the, the theme, if we wanna make sure that our kids will one day, thank you for the thumbs up, I appreciate that. If we wanna ensure that our children are gonna tell the story to theirs, the, the, the Purim story or any of these stories, and we need to come to shul we need to hear from the Megillah. We need to send Mishlach Manot. When your kids see that you're sending these food baskets and you're giving gifts to the poor, and by the way, opportunity now to give gifts to the poor so that poor people can celebrate Passover. It's called Ma'ot Chitim. It's called money for wheat. It's literally to have money to be able to um, contribute to people that need money for, uh, for the holiday. You can go on the Jewish Center a website and they have a button there you can click and make a donation and that money will go to poor people to enable them to enjoy the Passover holiday. Um, we need to perform rituals and mitzvot if we want to successfully transmit our beliefs and our values to another generation. And, 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 and mitzvot are vital 
for Jewish continuity for another important reason. If approached correctly, they can shape us in a way that nothing else can. And I've seen this in my outreach work countless times. Judaism becomes so much more attractive and a much more attractive way of life to those of us perhaps who were not raised with it when you see its transformative power on the people observing it. I'll give you a story that illustrates this. One of our participants um, was a young woman who became more, uh, I guess, observant in the ways of Torah and mitzvot. And she shared that she was raised in a, in a home very much review, removed from anything Jewish. And when I asked her what sparked her renewed interest in Judaism, what brought her to MGE to just even looking into this, she said it was something that happened when she was a student in medical school. It's really interesting. She shared that when they brought out the cadavers for the students to work on, most of the class exhibited either a kind of numb and even some callous kind of attitude, some even disrespectful when they were working on their cadavers. But there was one student in the class, was a young man who seemed to relate to his cadaver in a much more respectful manner. And when she saw that his behavior was attributable to his Jewish religious background, she was intrigued. And she began to inquire into Judaism's approach to death. And she was impressed with the Jewish concept of what's called in Hebrew, Kavar HaMais, the honor that Jewish tradition accords to the dead. And that inquiry led her to study more and more and eventually led her to take on a life of Torah and mitzvot. You know, I've been in touch with a, a number of rabbinic colleagues. We thankfully at MG have, haven't had to deal with this directly, but I'm in touch weekly with about 30 other rabbis from the Manhattan area. Uh, a lot of my friends and colleagues who are rabbis of all the shuls in the city and how to deal with congregants who unfortunately are passing away, whether they have corona, they don't have corona, when you can't have groups coming to the funeral, when you literally only have a, a handful of people at the gravesite uh, ceremony, you know, uh, very, very difficult. Do you do the tahara? Do you not do the tahara? Uh, taharas are the last sort of uh, washing the body in the waters of the mikvah before the body is dressed in tachrichim. And most Hebrew Kaddishas are not doing this anymore. Most um, uh, Jewish burial societies are not doing this on patients on individuals that died from corona because it's just too contagious. Uh, so they are still dressing the body in the tachrichim and playing, placing in the coffin. But it's a whole world. And I know it sounds very dour and sad, uh, and I, I don't mean to bring that up so much. I'm trying to keep these messages up and positive. But there's a whole world of kavod ames, of, um, of of giving respect to those who are deceased. And when this woman saw that this guy in her class, that when his cadaver was out, he never just spoke idle chatter around it, and he was respectful, and he saw that his ritual life was changed him. It made him more aware and mindful. So much of mitzvah are there to make us mindful of things that we're mindless about. When she saw that, she was impressed. She saw that it was the Torah's lifestyle that imbued this young man with the sensitivity that he displayed. And so mitzvot really have the power to shape us in a way that will ultimately make Jewish life even more attractive. Uh, an attractive alternative, I should say, really to those who are not raised with it. Now, simply performing mitzvot in and of itself does not guarantee anything. And I think we, in, I would say more in the Orthodox community, could be doing a better job of articulating the whys behind the mitzvot and the spiritual benefits that mitzvot offer, that we say blessings not just because our sages said we have to, but because we want to become more grateful people, that we put down the iPhone for 24 hours on Shabbat, not just because electricity is prohibited on the Sabbath, but because Shabbat is designed to help us create deeper connections with each other, something which technology, for all of its worth and how helpful it's been to us during this period of time, Technology, we know too much of it can hinder that. But ultimately, Judaism is living a lifestyle. It's not simply philosophy. Only a lifestyle can have that impact on us. You know, the famous French philosopher 
Rene Descartes famously said, I think, therefore I am. And I would argue that Judaism teaches, I behave, I live, and therefore I am. Our sages teach, after one's actions does one's heart follow. We often think that the only way we can do a mitzvah is if we feel it inside. I need to believe 100% in this thing. I need to understand what I'm doing or else, no, that's not the way it works. Sometimes you need to live in a certain way. Sometimes you need to perform a certain behavior, a certain action, a certain ritual. And that behavior then can start having an impact on the soul, on the emotions. So, you know, if you're not accustomed to helping that little old lady cross the street, by the way, don't help her today. Wait for Corona to pass. Social distance yourself, even from the nice little old lady trying to get across the street. But when this calms down, please God, and we can get back into contact with each other, and you're not accustomed to doing that, and like, oh, I don't want to be a hypocrite. No, it helps you. When you go out and you do things for other people, it affects you internally. I think I shared this before in one of the other classes. I was once counseling a couple, and this happens often. And they said, Rabbi, I was doing their wedding. I said, Rabbi, we're not going to have a kosher wedding. We thought about it, but we don't want to be hypocrites. Because we don't keep kosher in general. So why would we have a kosher wedding? You know, besides the extra um, uh, added cost of all the... Uh, I'm going to get to your questions in a minute. I'll stop talking in a second and take some questions. We'll finish up. But it's interesting that, um, um, that you know, like they didn't feel like it was right to have a kosher wedding because they don't keep kosher. They don't, want to, they don't want to be inconsistent or they don't want to be seen as hypocritical. Like, you know, we're such holy Jews. We don't really do this in general. We shouldn't put ourselves out that way. And I said, hang on. You hired a rabbi here to do the wedding. Why don't you just do it in any old way you want? Because you want to do it the right way. So, it's a sudas mitzvah. The meal that you have at a wedding is also a mitzvah meal. It's not just any, uh, any random meal. And a sudas mitzvah, you know, should be a kosher meal. So even though you don't normally do it, that's not being hypocritical. That's aspiring. That's, that's sort of living up. And who knows what impact that mitzvah will have on you. I used to be very cynical about these Chabad guys who you see on the street putting on tefillin on people. I used to be like, what are you doing? Who knows if this guy even believes in God and you're wrapping this leather straps on his arm. Really? And now I saw the Rebbe's brilliance, late and great Lubavitcher Rebbe, because he understood he understood that mitzvahs don't have to always work from inside out, that mitzvahs can work from outside in, that the things that we do behaviorally and ritually can influence us the way we think about life, the way we feel about things. And we don't always have, always have to have the perfect mindset. Oh, I'm not feeling like, uh, no, you wait for everything to align perfectly, nothing in life's going to happen. Just do the mitzvah. The ethics of our fathers teach mitzvah gorerit mitzvah. One mitzvah causes you to do another mitzvah. And that's what the Rebbe's brilliance was about. He understood that maybe this Jude has never seen a tefillin. It's going to think it's weird, but there's something about the experience of performing a mitzvah. How many Jews are keeping Shabbos all the time now and they weren't raised to do so because someone got them to do one Shabbos? And they were like, oh. And it wasn't because they convinced them that God created and he rested and we have to do the same, and we have to stop being attached to this and that, or all these, these lofty philosophical ideas. Some people come into Judaism like that, 100%. But most people do it because it feels good. Most people do it because it's something that's resonating with them. They're doing some mitzvah, and it's speaking to them, it's impacting them, it's changing them. And you don't always feel the change as it's happening. It's incremental. It's little by little. And if we want to be able to pass on to the next generation, whatever it is we believe in, then the last thing we need to do is preach. We need to behave. Keeping mitzvot isn't just good for the soul. It's the secret to Jewish survival. And I, I thought that that would be a, a nice message because it's connected to Passover, of course, for all the connections we made before. But it's also connected to this week's Parsha and all of these Parshiyot in Sefer Vayikra, in the book of Leviticus, that talk about the Kohanim. And Marva Amarta, it says, tell the Kohanim and tell. Why double language? Because what was the, they were supposed to educate their children and how to educate the next generation through modeling. Modeling, modeling. That is the best way uh, to teach. I want to see what some of the questions uh, that some of you have had the whole time.
Okay, these are just people who came on. We had a beautiful group of people we have here. Thank you all for listening. Sorry, I'm getting so in your face here. Um, seeing my father kisses tzitzit, Rob Brody, speaks volumes. Right, those little things make impact. Now, there will be lots of people that won't necessarily carry on the traditions of their parents and grandparents. But, you know, I just spoke with someone a few days ago about all of the mitzvot that he is going to be doing to prepare for Passover because he had a grandfather who was very, very strict when it came to Passover. So although he doesn't really keep kosher during the year, he wants to go kosher for Passover. And that's not a hypocritical or inconsistent thing because something touched him when he was younger in terms of the way he saw other people doing this. Um, I want to see on the other, Ellie Bickoff, welcome. Thank you, Benjamin, for, for putting all this here. I'm sorry we didn't use the handout today. Uh, ben Rohr, what an honor to have you. Jonathan Brody, we are inviting to learn Torah. Come and be a part of classes while social distancing. We are an open community. Thank you, Jonathan Brody. You should all know here, one of the great things, I mean, there have been a lot of positive things, believe it or not, coming out of this corona. Uh, mostly negative, but some good positives. One, of, one is reconnecting with Jonathan Brody, who helped MGE build MGE downtown years ago and is still promoting MGE to this day. Really, thank you. Welcome, Jessica Barish. Um, just seeing if anyone has any questions. Jordan Sudberg, what a pleasure. Bita, Marcus Freed, Ron Brody. I'm here, needs, uh, needs some inspiration. Okay, I'm trying to see if there are any other uh, questions. or So let me just say, I mean, are there any other questions or comments that you have before we finish up here? Uh, that's the message I really I wanted to leave you guys with. Let me make give you a, a quick commercial. Um, <clears throat> tonight at 6.15, we are, like every Friday night, we're going to be having Kabbalat Shabbat, and it's officially the sixth year anniversary of Friday Night Lights. Uh, Rabbi Joshua Klein uh, helped us start FNL. Um, I'll tell you who the rabbi who really kicked it off, and that was our teacher, uh, Shuki, my teacher, Rabbi Shlomo Riskin, he should live and be well. Uh, Rabbi Riskin, uh, six years ago, came to me and said, what is MGE missing? And he had some uh, donors who uh, wanted to help out. Uh, that was the first and probably the last time that a rabbi will come to me with funding. Yeah, that was pretty unbelievable. And I said, Rabbi, uh, Rabbi Riskin was my principal. I went to his high school and stayed close with him throughout the years. He's an unbelievable personality. And Rabbi Riskin, I told him, I said, you know, we do a beautiful Friday night davening whenever we have those monthly dinners at MJE. Each of our three sites has a monthly Shabbat dinner. They're on recess right now, of course. Um, and we always have a beautiful Kabbalah Shabbat, but we don't do it on the other, you know, Friday nights. It would be great if we could do it every Friday night, but we would need funding for this. And, uh, and Rabbi Riskin turned back and said, I'll get you the funding, but I want you to use music. Start it before Shabbos so you can use music. And it's been going strong for six years. And I have to tell you, it's building momentum since Corona. Our numbers are actually uh, significantly more. They've always been good. And, and kudos to Rabbi Joshua Klein for keeping this program not just alive, but growing and thriving. It's getting bigger and better. Every Friday night, I want to thank my son Yosef with his beautiful voice and guitar. Uh, he's been just giving a lot of spirit. And I have my two other sons here, we're singing together. Please join us tonight at 6.15. I forgot exactly what time candle lighting is. Jill, if anyone's out there, if anyone wants to yell candle lighting time, or um, you can actually just post it here if anybody actually knows the candle lighting time. What we do is, um, Price, thank you for your kind words. Um, oh, I'll say saying the Shabbat HaGadol. It's a very important Shabbos. Oh, so we're going to do the Kabbalat Shabbat, and then um, we'll be lighting the Shabbat candles um, like seven. I have to see what time candle lighting is. Uh, we end it off with uh, the lighting of the candles, and then we start Shabbat, and then we have Dala Saturday night. Uh, yes, Joshua Klein is a magic mensch. Oh, I love that line. So Shabbat HaGadol just means the big Shabbos. The Shabbos before Passover is called Shabbat HaGadol. It's called that for two reasons. To one, number one, recount the great miracle that took place uh, when our ancestors were going to leave Egypt. Uh, God told the Jewish people to take the lamb, which was the Egyptian god, and to slaughter the lamb publicly, some, like an act of defiance. 
and nothing happened to the Jewish people. The Jewish people were spared. And uh, that's Shabbat HaGadol. Oh, Rachel, candle lighting 705. Thank you so much. So we're going to go from 615 to 705. And then at 705, we're going to be lighting the candles. Jill will lead us in that. And uh, the second reason is Shabbat HaGadol, because there's so many laws and rituals and traditions to get ready for Passover. Rabbis usually give a Shabbat HaGadol drasha, like a long sermon. Um, and we did an Ask the Rabbi instead last night, which is what we always do at MJE instead of that. And um, so it's a big Shabbos because people are getting ready for Passover and it recounts that great miracle. Um, Want to also just mention, um, yeah, so we're going to do 705 as candlelighting. Uh, according to Rachel, Jeff is telling us it's 708 per the Chabad calendar. Okay, we can't get to agree on anything, can we? Two Jews, three opinions, right? Thanks, Jeff. <laughs> um, Want to mention also a couple of other important uh, things. We will, if you are alone for the Seder, MGE has organized, uh, we're doing this together with the Jewish Center, uh, we will be organizing my good friend, Yona Bookstein, I called him up, he's in LA, uh, to be able to zoom in to your Seder if you are alone or you don't know how to run your own Seder. Let me explain to you how that works very, very briefly. You will not be seen or heard, but you can watch and listen to Rabbi Yona, who in real time, three hours earlier, right, in LA, will be leading a Seder. Um, we're gonna probably start it at around 7 p.m., but the Seder part won't start probably <clears throat> until about 7.30 or so, but candle lighting on Wednesday night, I believe is 7.28. So uh, you need to put the, um, you need to put, uh, no, I'm sorry, candle lighting is 7.10, and you got that 18 minute window. So you have till technically till 7.28 to put on your Zoom. And uh, that's one of the ways we're dealing with um, people being alone. You will have um, Rabbi uh, uh, Yona Bookstein, very, very talented, entertaining rabbi. He's a colleague and dear friend of mine for many years, coming to you through Zoom um, in order to deal with some of the halachic issues of being captured on film. So it's not a problem for him because it's not the holiday yet. So you just, before Yom Tov starts, you just put on the Zoom and press stop to the video and press mute to the audio. So you can see and hear him, but he can't see or hear you. And that will get around the halachic issues involved in being captured on film on the holiday. I know there are some rabbis from Israel who are okay with that, who think the back and forth Zoom thing is okay, and there is such an opinion. The opinion that I uh, consulted with Harav Shechter from Yeshiva University, who I consulted with, he thinks it is an issue for you on the holiday to be captured by a video. Uh, I'm not telling you what to do, I'm just giving you the different opinions. There are rabbis in Israel who think it's okay as long as you don't tape it. But according to everyone, you need to set it up before the holiday starts and just leave it there. Um, and you can keep it on your dining room table. I think this is very important for people who are alone. Or um, And the reason we went together on this with the Jewish Center is the Jewish Center has some elderly people who are alone and they need somebody walking through the Seder with them at MG ears. We have some MG participants, unfortunately, alone for the Seder and could really use both emotionally and educationally somebody there walking through the Seder. I can think of nobody better than Rabbi Yonah Books. And we can only really organize it for the first night. So at least we have that. Uh, we will be getting to you information about that uh, probably on Monday of next week. Um, uh, give you the Zoom information and what time to get on and all that. Um, so that's happening Monday night. I want to invite you to my mock Seder. I'm going to sit here and we're going to have a mock Seder, um, go through everything, give you some things to share at the Seder table, what we do, all the rituals for the Seder. That'll be at eight o'clock on Facebook Live. And uh, Rabbi Avi will be doing one, I think, on Tuesday night. And, uh, and then Wednesday night, of course, is uh, Passover itself. Tuesday night is the night we do the checking for chametz. Please um, sell your chametz. Uh, you can do it through MGE. Just go on the MGE website, or, we, or hopefully you've been getting the emails. It has all the information uh, to go online and to sell your chametz. You just take the chametz you want to sell and put it in some area of your home that you don't inadvertently pick it up over the holiday, or just put some paper around it. You can just leave it where it is, and you can sell your chametz. Any other questions about the holiday, please, please see me, talk to me offline or Rabbi Joshua Klein, Rabbi Ezra Cohn, 
uh, Rabbi Pinny Rosenthal. Um, I'm just looking if there are any other um, questions. Yeah, oh, you're explaining why three minutes later. Okay, we'll, we light candles at 7.05. Okay. Um, use every Friday like a reset. Beautiful, Sandra. 100%. Every Friday is like a reset. I, I can't emphasize this enough. Just to stay sane. This is a crazy, crazy time. We're feeling so cooped up and quarantined. Try to feel the holiness and beauty of Shabbos. Try to get into it. We're trying to trying to give you the tools to do that. We're trying to give you the inspiration. I want to thank Yosef also for his meditation this morning. He had a beautiful crowd. Uh, try to really use Shabbos to feel a little peace. Um, and uh, just stay safe. Stay healthy. And uh, keep pumping yourself with positive and good energy. Please qu keep calling your parents, your loved ones, your grandparents. Tell them how much you love them. You're here for them. And have a holy and beautiful Shabbos. We'll hopefully see you back for Kabbalah Shabbat at 6.15. Have a great day. Thank you all for participating. And a good and Arab Shabbos. We hope you've enjoyed this episode of The Wildcast. Subscribe to our show on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Play, or your favorite podcast app. If you haven't already, please leave us a review on the Apple Podcast Store. It only takes a minute, and when you do, it helps others discover the show. For more information about the Manhattan Jewish Experience, visit our website at jewishexperience.org or follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Thanks again for joining us today.